Hello, everyone. My name is Natalie Turvey. I'm president and executive director of the Canadian Journalism Foundation, and it's my pleasure to welcome you to today's JTalks Live webcast reporting on the ground in Afghanistan. Thank you for joining us for these important conversations exploring pressing issues in journalism. We're grateful for the generosity of our exclusive JTalks series sponsor, TD Bank Group, for making these conversations possible. And our thanks also to our in-kind supporters, CPAC and Cision. If you would like to support the work of the CJF, you can donate now or at any time on the CJF website. And a reminder to save the date to join us for this year's CJF award ceremony taking place in person on June 7th at the Art Gallery of Ontario. And we look forward to bringing you a live stream of the awards. Stay tuned to our newsletter for updates in the coming weeks on our nominees and honorees. Today's program is 60 minutes long and you can submit questions for our speakers at any time via the tab on your screen. And if you'd like to tweet about today's conversation, our hashtag is JTalksLive. And now on to our program. Last August, the world watched as the 20-year war in Afghanistan concluded with the Taliban retaking control. Visceral images of desperation and suffering dominated coverage for weeks, but few were on the ground to capture firsthand accounts of what was to come and the stories of those left behind. Today, we welcome a panel of journalists and storytellers who were there before and during the takeover. They join us to provide insights into the challenges and the importance of covering these stories. Joining us from Global News in Canada, please welcome Stuart Bell, investigative journalist, and Jeff Semple, senior correspondent and video journalist. In Somaliland, Hind Hassan, international correspondent, Vice World News, and in Afghanistan, Kiana Hayeri, freelance photographer and visual storyteller. They are in conversation with one of Canada's most recognizable names in global affairs coverage, Neil Coxell, host of CBC's World Report. It is an honor to have them with us today. Neil, over to you. Thank you so much, Natalie, and it is an honor to be with you all today. You know, the Afghanistan story, the reality of people in Afghanistan. Uh, it is one of the most heartbreaking and compelling stories uh, we ha have covered, and there are still so many questions left to answer about how things unfolded and so many people's stories to, to keep telling. So I'm, I'm very pleased I can talk to this particular group of journalists because, as you'll see in a moment, their work is incredible. And I want to show you what a little bit of, of what they've done, and I hope that encourages you to check out more of their work online. But let's play you that video before we get to our questions. In terms of the cases that you've dealt with today, what are the potential punishments that they could be served in the end? The man that was sat in front of you that was accused of stealing, potentially, at the end of the court case, he might have his hand cut off. Human rights organizations would look at this scene and see men who don't have representatives, who don't have anybody putting forward their case, who have people who don't necessarily have the judicial or legal experience to be able to be handing out punishments, deciding the fate of an individual. And they would say that that isn't justice. What would you say to them? 
نو د سوال د همکانه دی موږ هر از دکړه نه موږ هر عمل نه موږ هر کردار د موافق او مطابق د قران او د شریعت دی اضافه نور هیڅ شی نشته کی سو از دیس ا جاستیس سیستم دت یو وود لایک تو سی امپلیمنتد ان کابل اند اکراس افغانستان نو دا خو عملی دی په دوه کې شک نشته هغه ساحې چې د امارت کنټرول لاندې دي اسلامي امارت کنټرول لاندې په هغو کې په قطعن دغه د قران او د شریعت غږ دی او همدغه عملی کول نور هیڅ شی نشته کی Gafar is one of 2,000 Afghans and their families who supported Canada's military mission and who are now hiding in safe houses across Kabul. They've applied to move to Canada as refugees. Some have waited months for a response, and time is running out. These families just received an email from the Canadian NGO that manages these safe houses, informing them that due to dwindling financial resources, on November 5th, some of these safe houses will have to close and some of these families will be forced out. This Taliban police commander told Global News that Afghans who supported Canada's military have nothing to fear. Reassuring words, but their actions speak loudest. For four years, Darkhani worked security at the Canadian Forces Base in Kandahar. Six months ago, her 23-year-old son was killed by a Taliban bomb attack. The Taliban hates that I worked with the Canadians as a female police officer, she says. When the Taliban says they're peaceful and don't threaten anybody, they're lying. The opposite is true. Said powerful, and I don't think I was uh, overstating just how incredible the work is. Just a bit of it there for you. And I'll start where that video ended. Uh, Jeff, let me ask you, what surprised you most when you got there to cover what was unfolding? Yeah, thanks, Noah, for the question. And uh, yeah, it's an honor to be here with you and um, our colleagues here on stage, on our virtual stage. I think, uh, yeah, I was surprised by a lot. I think one of the things that surprised me most um, was just in some ways how open the Taliban was to receiving foreign journalists from hostile countries. I mean, the Canadian government considers the Taliban to be a terrorist organization. Um, and yet, you know, it was a sign of just, I think, how desperate the Taliban is for international recognition and desperately needed foreign aid uh, that we were essentially welcomed in. We needed an Afghan visa, and then we received a letter of permission from the Taliban's Ministry of Foreign Affairs. But after that, we were able to, you know, travel around, to speak to people, you know, relatively unimpeded. And I, you know, I was surprised by that. I think, uh, you know, the Taliban allowed us to monitor some of their patrols, to sit in on some of their primary courts, to interview Taliban officials. And when we would go into government buildings, the Taliban guards would search us and then sometimes apologize profusely for, you know, searching us and saying they mean no offense and they're just doing their jobs and, and that sort of thing. So I think it was clear that the Taliban was hoping to show a friendlier face to the outside world, and and so we were, you know, accommodated. And I was I was surprised uh, to the extent to which that was true. Um, there was some speculation and concern going in that we might be monitored or followed during our time in in uh, in Kabul. And I, you know, I've been in countries where that's happened. I don't think that was the case this time. Um, and one other thing that I was surprised to see, you know, as a Canadian, was that 
everywhere we went, we met people who were desperately trying to not only get out, but get out to Canada. Um, it sort of reminded me of covering the Syrian refugee crisis a few years ago, where everyone you met in the Middle East and Europe, they were all trying to get to Germany because German Chancellor Angela Merkel had said they were welcome. Well, this was sort of Justin Trudeau's Angela Merkel moment. They, all these Afghans knew that Canada was accepting 40,000 refugees. And so they were all trying to come to Canada, had applied from our hotel clerk to our taxi driver, even a, a senior Taliban official whom Stuart and I spoke to off camera, um, off you know on background, at the end of our conversation, asked us how he could apply to come to Canada as a refugee and whether we might be able to help him with that. So that was surprising as well. And I think it really does speak to how desperate the situation in the country has become. And I'm going to ask you all about, about that, navigating those kinds of requests and the people left behind and the people still trying to come. But Hind, let me bring you in here because your video, you know, opening that that compilation we just put together when we talk about access and and tal the Taliban revealing, you know, what they what they really plan to do and how they plan to rule, knowing that before August came, knowing those those signals were there, what did you make of of how things unfolded, how quickly things unfolded, and and also the international reaction? Um, I think it was even though we were expecting the Taliban and everyone was expecting the Taliban to um, make inroads um, and to try and move to Kabul, I think everyone was surprised at how quickly it happened, uh, including, of course, the Afghan government. When we were in Afghanistan, as well as spending time with the Taliban, we also spoke to the National Security Advisor, Hamdullah Mohib. We spent quite a lot of time with him. And everywhere we went, we'd ask him over and over again, you know, do you feel ready? Do you think that you will be able to secure Afghanistan and protect it um, once the U.S. pull out its final uh, troops? And he would say over and over again, we have spent the past 20 years um, training, equipping, equipping ourselves. And, you know, it's not great that they're leaving, but we do believe we're going to be able to protect Afghanistan. And, um, you know, there are different things that we're concerned about. And... Um, potentially Afghan uh, Taliban taking over certain areas. And it seemed from the conversations that we had over and over again that he, he, they were not considering the real possibility that within a few months the Taliban would be in Kabul and would they would be leaving Afghanistan. Um, and the thing that they kept repeating over and over again, which was quite difficult to... Uh, believe even then, and we challenged him on this repeatedly, um, Hamdullah Mohib would keep saying to us over and over again, you know, we need to negotiate with the Taliban, they need to accept democracy. And we kept asking them, and I asked them over and over again, do you really honestly believe that the Taliban in any situation is going to negotiate with you and accept some form of uh, a democratic political system? And his response was, oh, I think we can convince them. And that was just in, in February. Um, and so from those interviews, I have to believe that, you know, he was he believed what he was saying um, and they were not expecting the, the Taliban to come in as quickly as possible. But the reality was when we arrived um, in 2020, when we, when, when we first went there to meet with the Taliban, we, we met with them twice. Violence was surging. Taliban was gaining more territory. They'd gained more ground than they previously had. Uh, so all the signs were that despite the peace deal, Afghanistan was in a very, very dangerous position. 
Do you think it, it was it unfolded the way it did because the international community wasn't paying close attention? Well, it wasn't a priority. Um, I think when it comes to politics, I think the United States had decided that it was going to, um, you know, withdraw and that it decided that this was going to be the end of their relationship um, in Afghanistan and um, perhaps didn't uh, believe that it was going to happen as quickly as possible. But, um, you know, this was a reality that had been considered by everyone, by the Afghan government, by the United States. Um, and I think there was an expectation that it could potentially happen, but that there might be more room for um, maneuver or negotiation. I don't, it seems as though, I don't know if everybody else would agree that no one really expected it to happen as quickly as possible. Um, but when, when we went in August 2020, there was definitely a feeling from Afghans uh, that they had been living this reality of war and conflict for 20 years and the international community could switch on and switch off whenever it wanted to. Um, so at, at certain moments, you know, it was headline news and people were concerned with what was happening in Afghanistan, but at other times uh, locals were having to live their lives as, as dangerously as they always had. So I think for Afghans, uh, who locals who were living there, they definitely felt as though the international community was not focused on the humanitarian situation and the developing situation in Afghanistan as much as it could have been or should have been. Kiana, you were there, you are still there. What was it like for you to see it all unfold, to live it, but also to cover it? Um, so, I mean, just to be clear, the day Kabul fell in the evening, I left for a couple of weeks and I returned eventually. Uh, but yeah, it was, um, uh, I mean, I was on a, on an assignment for several months, uh, from the beginning of the year and watching how the situation was changing. And over the last two months, how quickly everything was changing. It was very, um, it was very unbelievable, I think. Uh, and what happened was in the last month, just before the fall, um, 20 years of, um, progress was wiped in 20 days. The speed of things was so fast that we couldn't even catch. And this is something, an example that I use in the last two months that our reporting um, with the New York Times has been, had been, we had one person assigned to count the fallen district, and then we had one uh, person assigned to count the fallen man, the civilian casualty. And that's what our reporting had become. Um, yeah. So, and then, uh, yeah, I left for a couple of weeks and then I returned and it's just a new world, um, a lot of adjusting to um, how to operate in the country. Um, it has its, I mean, it has its own benefits. It's never been, in seven years I've been living here, this is the safest I've ever experienced Afghanistan. I mean, we're driving everywhere. Uh, we as foreign journalists, it's... Um, we have a lot of privileges. It's not like that for Afghan journalists, not at all, not at all. Um, and yeah, so let's see. It's safer for you, as you said, do you feel that it's safer for the people that you're talking to? What is the reality for them? The reality is the war has ended. The conflict, the active war has ended. Um, no, it's not safer for activists, for civil rights activists, uh, for journalists, the um, minorities, some of the minorities, it's not safer for them. But the, the war has stopped and peace has come, has arrived finally to people's backyard. Uh, and that is, 
it's beautiful to see. It comes with it comes with a cost. It comes with a sadness, but it's beautiful to witness. It's, it's fascinating to hear that on the ground perspective right now, Stuart. I haven't forgotten about you. Thank you for waiting so patiently. You know, the investigative journalism takes time. It takes fostering contacts. Something like this. You know, you have to mobilize very quickly, but obviously the benefit of, of covering the region before or having contacts built, how did that help you And when you when you guys got on the ground, but also what surprised you, like I was asking everyone else? Uh, well, I mean, what helped us is having gone through Pakistan and then into Afghanistan. So we started out in Islamabad, and while we were there, we met uh, all kinds of um, Afghans who had worked for the Canadian forces and who were on their way out. So um, by meeting them, we, they were able to open doors for us for the people that were still stuck inside Kabul. Uh, so that was a huge um, advantage going that route. And, um, you know, it just by the, even before we arrived, we had already uh, arranged interviews with people that were in safe houses and that kind of thing. Um, in terms of the surprises, I guess, I was really, I was really moved by the heartbreak of the women and girls in particular. Um, I mean, we met women that had two university degrees and uh, were professionals working uh, in for companies, for government, and they'd just been told one day to go home. Uh, we went to schools where girls have been told to go home because they'd reached a certain age. And it just, I mean, it just, uh, it was tragic. Um, and even more so when you think about all of the sacrifice and all of the work that was done over the last two decades to try and... Um, you know, to try and develop Afghanistan, to to bring women into the fold, you know, you know, and it was just, it was so heartbreaking. And, you know, the contrast as well, I mean, the, a lot of the Taliban that we would see on the streets, they were not from Kabul, they were from outlying areas. And, and they looked, you know, when you talk to them, they were not highly educated, you could tell. Um, and so to see you know, the, the heartbreak of those women uh, being told by very, you know, I, I hate to say it, but simplistic men in some cases, that they can't work, that they can't go to school. It just, uh, it, it really, you know, it was a very hard thing to see. I had some conversations uh, for our coverage here. Judges who were trying to come to Canada now have been promised that they can. And hearing similar stories, why are you in the office? Go home. And then the desperate... Um, efforts to get out. Kiana, let me ask you, you know, it's better, as you said, uh, in, in some ways, but that piece comes at a, as, at a cost. What is it like for non-journalists, other women and girls right now, today? It's very complicated. I mean, one thing that media is constantly doing wrong is putting an umbrella over Afghanistan, over Taliban, over everything, trying to like simplify things. It's very difficult. Region to region is different. Um, uh, even within Kabul, different neighborhoods are different. So, I mean, there's no easy answer to to give. Yes, uh, girls cannot go to public schools over um, grade six, but then in Kunduz province, which is a very, um, uh, um, how do you say it, uh, conservative, uh, area. It was one of the first um, provinces that they sent girls to school because the elder sat down and talked to Taliban. And then uh, here in Herat, where I am right now, uh, I was just talking to the driver. Uh, public schools are not open to girls over six, but then you can enroll your daughters to um, uh, private school and they get the education. 
private uh, universities are open to women. So it's all different. In terms of jobs, uh, yes, a lot of women are out of job right now. But still, surprisingly, you see in like Hellman, women are still going to uh, usually like a health, like uh, works that are related to uh, UN vaccination. Those things they still go to work. I met some of some amazing, amazing women just this past week uh, who are in Wardai coming from very, very conservative districts at work so it's there's no easy way to answer that one thing that is common though dreams are crushed that is common across uh, the country into that video that we saw part of part of your story um just tell me what what it was like you know obviously we remain we remain, we have a distance as as journalists but as a woman confronting the taliban asking them questions being told that's that's just a silly question um, but how did they receive you and how did you navigate that? Um, well, we went in with the protection of very senior Taliban commanders. So we, the, the area that we were in, in, in Waldorf province and the villages that we went to, the commanders um, had to treat us well because they had received orders from higher up. So the reality was that even though, of course, you're in a dangerous situation because, you know, we are not in communication with our security team. We're just a bunch of Western journalists who are with the Taliban in their territory. It always felt about as, as safe as it could be in that situation. Um, in that room, for example, when this, you know, makeshift court was taking place, they, I did feel as though I could ask them, any question that I wanted to ask. Um, uh, and, you know, that you kind of gauge it as a journalist when you're in situations and you know how far to push and when you should hold back. And at that point, I think this commander that we were dealing with, he was 27 years old, that person that I was speaking to on the clip there. And he was, um, he spent a lot of time with us. We ended up having to stay overnight on that particular occasion because there was uh, fighting between the Taliban and the Afghan National Army and the roads ended up being blocked. We could hear airstrikes in the distance and drones, which meant we actually, we actually had to spend the evening in a Taliban house at the time. And the commander, that same person, spent time with us. And um, when we were sat with him, he was asking to try... One of um, one of the crew's vapes. Uh, he was joking, asking to see pictures and asking about relationships, and was being very casual in his conversation with us. So, and we saw that quite a lot with the younger Taliban fighters, who tended to, at the time, they seemed to be more open. They were just as strong in their conviction of what they wanted to do and what they believed they were fighting for. I didn't see any difference between them and, and the older Taliban fighters, but they were more uh, responsive and open, and some of them even shook my hand when, when I first um, met them. So, you know, of course, I still had to... I was very aware that I was, you know, a woman in, a, in you know, rooms filled with men, and I had to still observe and respect, um, you know, the local customs all the culture, and there were situations on another occasion, for example, um, we also stayed overnight on a, on a different occasion, and they took us to a so-called safe house, which we were driven into 
the mountains. We drove for hours in the darkness and managed to get to this hill in the middle of nowhere. Um, and then we had to trek to get to this place. And when we arrived, I was the only woman in, in the crew and we were separated. So the, the guys in the crew stayed with everybody else. And then I was sent over to this women's house and I had to stay there by myself. Um, and I had no reception, no phone, no way to communicate with anybody. It was just me. Um, but they were the, the women that were there that I shared that house with were, were incredibly hospitable. They were very um, kind to me. They came and sat in the room with me. We couldn't really communicate apart from pointing to different items of jewelry that we were wearing. Um, so, yeah, it, 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 I mean, again, I was, I'm obviously in a privileged position as a journalist. And I was very aware that I was being treated a certain way because I was a journalist. And it was clear that even at that point that, you know, the Taliban were wanting to show themselves in a certain light or in a different way. And, and so that wasn't necessarily what we saw on the ground. When we were taken into the villages, at that, the village that we went in, we didn't see women walking around. We didn't see them in the market. We didn't see them, you know, actively being part of the, the society or the community. Uh, and that was very, very clear. So I was, we were very aware of our role as journalists and the fact that we were welcomed in. Um, and what was interesting was that, um, as was mentioned earlier, it varies from region to region how, and even back then, the areas that were under Taliban control, it varied how um, the, the jurisdiction that was imposed on people, the laws that were imposed on people, really depended on the elders or the Taliban leaders that were in that particular area. Um, and so we were told that in some areas they were, you know, far more strict and had far more extreme interpretations of Sharia law than in, in other areas. And um, there were some commanders that we spoke to that were taken to who really, we felt as though they resented us being there. They didn't really want to speak to us, but they were told that they had to engage with us and they had no choice. And there was a, a situation where I met with a different commander and I asked him, I just basically asked him what the government had told us over and over again. And that was that, you know, if the Taliban wants to have any form of power in, in Kabul or if they want to come into government, then they're going to have to accept our political system. They're going to have to accept democracy. And that's the only way it's going to happen. And that seems like they were living in, in fairyland at the time. So when we met with the Taliban, we wanted to put to them what the government were saying over and over again. And I asked this commander, I said to him, you know, would you allow female politicians in your government? It seems like, uh, you know, of course, they're going to say no, but we wanted to put what the government was saying. And he laughed. He, that was his response. He, he laughed and he um, looked at the camera and was like, yeah, this is a stupid question. <laughs> let's end this conversation. So, um, yeah, it was, there were definitely different experiences depending on who we were speaking to and where we were. And then obviously also considering the fact that we were Western journalists and that we were definitely given privileges as a result of that. Yeah, they wanted to get their message out, but you have to take it moment by moment, interview by interview, I can imagine, just to keep yourself safe, but also get the story you're there to report on. Jeff, let's go back to what you said really off the top. Uh, about all those people asking for help, people still looking for help. So how did you navigate that um, while still trying to get the coverage you were, you were trying to get? 
Yeah, I mean, it's 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 been difficult. I think, um, like everyone here on the this virtual stage, you know, we've reported from war torn countries and really poor places and refugee camps where people are where you meet people who are really desperate um, in a way that you're not used to seeing in Canada, right? And are just begging you for help, and it's always hard to leave those places. But I think this one was particularly hard. Um, in part because we were, you know, one of the stories we we went over to tell was the these Afghans, many of them who had worked with the Canadian military, um, and you know the Canadian government promised to help them. Uh, a lot of them left everything behind in Kandahar as instructed, came to Kabul with nothing, waiting to get on one of these rescue flights. And then, as has been mentioned, the Taliban moved in much faster than just what anybody expected. And suddenly, you know, thousands of these Afghans who thought they were on their way to Canada were stuck um, and are still stuck. Uh, some of them have, have gotten out, but, um, you know, many of them haven't. Uh, and, you know, we met them, we met their families, they invited us into the safe houses where they were staying that were being paid for at the time by private donations and organized by Canadian veterans groups. Those safe houses have now closed, the money has ran out. So a lot of them either went back to Kandahar to find the Taliban had taken over their homes, um, or are left with nothing. Um, and they're still, you know, messaging me every day on, uh, on WhatsApp and, um, and other messaging apps. Um, it's difficult. And I think it is, you know, it's hard for as journalists. It's, it's a weird job in some ways, right? Because it is a job where we can find ourselves dealing directly with people who are so desperate. And yet, we are not there to directly offer them assistance uh, in the same way that a doctor is or an aid worker, right? I mean, our job our calling, if you like, is to tell their story and hope that it spurs perhaps change on a on a larger level. We we have seen some instances of that. Uh, we did a story on families who had been torn apart uh, in in the rush to get out of the country. You know, a, a father and daughter who were left in Kabul, and then the mother and son were in Vancouver. And as a result of that story, the Canadian government changed its policy when it comes to reuniting families. But generally speaking, it's it's been very very tough to watch this. And I think the you know, we just keep telling the stories as best we can. Um, and I think it is the larger accountability story that the Canadian government promised to rescue 40,000 Afghan refugees. And they are essentially, uh, you know, mixing the numbers a little bit now by bringing in plane loads of Afghan refugees who were already outside of the country, uh, who had been living for years in Indonesia, for example. Maybe they don't have any connection directly to Canada. And obviously, you know, they're uh, you know, we want to help as many people as we can, but I think um, there continues to be a, a story there about people who risk their lives working with the Canadians against the Taliban, uh, who are now trapped in a country that is ruled by the very same people they were fighting against and who are, you know, very afraid. And if the Taliban doesn't get them, we haven't seen any, fortunately, any, seen any sort of orchestrated um, coordinated attempts to take revenge against these people as of yet, uh, though some have lost their lives, including a 10-year-old girl uh, whom we reported on. Uh, but for the most part, the Taliban hasn't taken revenge against these people, but what is happening instead is that, um, as you know, Canada knows better than, than most of us, that the, the economy is imploding, uh, and they are going hungry, and they are starving, and they are poor. And so if the Taliban doesn't get them, uh, poverty and hunger might. And Stuart, this, it's a conversation that I think has been happening in many, many newsrooms that I've heard from colleagues uh, at different networks, um, different outlets. People who worked with our, our teams um, needed help, translators and things like that. So they felt compelled to help. And there were discussions about that separation between journalists and their story. This was seen a little bit differently. Was that a conversation you and your teams had? 
we were really we were there just to tell the stories. I think that was uh, you know there were a lot of people that asked us for for help, personal help. Can you talk to the minister and tell him our situation? And we just had to explain that's really not our role. I mean, our role is to tell your story, and hopefully, by telling your story, we can affect change. But I mean, the the sense of urgency that we felt, it, it just it's. Uh, I, I recall. Um, we had been communicating with one guy through WhatsApp, really wanted to meet us. And we had a really long day. I think we met the Taliban spokesperson that day. And just sort of at the very end of the day, we said, okay, let's meet this guy. And we went and we ended up uh, going into this huge safe house. And I, I walked into the dining room with Jeff and there were about 50 men there and all of them had worked for the Kane forces. And we they showed us around the safe house there were i mean there were hundreds of people living there um a lot of tons of kids and it just really struck me at that moment kind of the sense of duty that we had as journalists that these people were uh, really afraid for their safety for their lives for their families um they um just outside the walls were their enemy that they had been involved, you know, in the conflict on the, they were on the Canadian side, the Taliban, obviously uh, their enemy. And um, it just, we, we kind of had this sense that, um, you know, there was the, there was a potential for uh, real atrocities to begin to happen to these people. And we were in a position to try and sort of raise the alarm about that. And, uh, and it just gave us this really strong sense of urgency that, you know, unfortunately it hasn't happened yet. We're, I'm not convinced that um, these sort of orchestrated retaliations will not happen down the road once the Taliban begin to get the kind of recognition that they want internationally. Um, but, uh, I mean, I guess to get to your question, uh, I mean, as a journalist, I think it is enough to tell a story. I mean, we're not there. There's a reason that we don't get personally involved in these kind of things, um, and I think to to tell a story is is our is our role, and and that's what we that's what we need to do. And taking you know Canadians or any viewer or listener or reader to to tell them something they don't know, to take them to places that they can't see. Kiana, I want to talk about your photos and how and how they do that because uh, the other thing that makes journal you know great journalism great is they show you aspects of a story they may not have considered and, and give a look like you said often Afghanistan but other countries as well we see them in one way or that's how they're portrayed and just not even knowing you looking at those photographs right away uh, I could get a sense of a little bit of what you were trying to say but it, folks can find them online they were in that video a few of them but the wrestling club for example that photo tell me about that and what you wanted to say and get across in that photo uh, that wrestling club was attacked by ISIS. It was, um, I, I'm sorry, it's, it's been a long day. I don't remember exactly what year was it, but this was like a follow-up story we did a year later and how uh, everybody, including the, the instructor who was injured and lost one of his arms to it, have gone back and they rebuilt the, the gym stronger than before. It was actually more and more people were coming to sign up for it. And that's just a sign of um, resilience, you know, like, and, and that's something <laughs> um, I think who, 
whoever, including, and I, the only reason I say this, like my parents understand this very well because they lived through the war. If you live through the war, you understand life goes on no matter what, right? And those photos that I chose, yes, there is one or two that shows the what happened in the in the last couple of years with all the um, the conflict. But um, life goes on. You still celebrate the new year with your colorful dress, the best like putting putting on makeup you still go back to the gym that was blown up earlier um so that's 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 what i always have to try to show that life goes on no matter what it, the the colorful picture in the sunshine with all the outfits was that a celebration that is that is no celebration yes that was in daikundi last year um uh, and it, it was just beautiful because Daikundi is one of the most impoverished regions. And then yet you could see the women, uh, they had whatever the best dress they had. They put on makeup. In thousands, they showed up for the celebration. Some of them had walked for as long as like hours and hours, like 18 hours, just walking to get to that celebration. The issue of of the desperation right now, Kiana, the hunger that Jeff referenced, we've certainly covered it on World Report as well as the reports come out from the UN and World Food Program. What are things like right now in terms of, of access to food and, and the desperation that we've heard about? Uh, yes, uh, the, the prices of food has, I mean, the food exists here, like the, uh, it's just the prices have gone up and there's no money is not circulating. Uh, uh, people are out of jobs, so they don't have any income. So that is the problem. Uh, I was actually talking to a friend who's an expert and uh, what's really, um, what's happening is um, malnourishment inside cities, big cities like Herat, Kabul, Mazar, uh, that is going up. And it's not only in children and infants and it's in adults. And one thing that I, um, uh, asked from fellow journalists is covering this issue because the more severe images of like dying children, the more we distance ourselves from the problem of the others. Uh, so it's very important how this issue exists, right? But how you portray it is very important, especially when it comes to like numbers, uh, visuals, uh, that's something that needs to be considered. How do you think it, it should be covered? Just elaborate that, that on that a little bit for me. Um, honestly, I, I don't, I'm not sure if I have an answer. I just did a story for Nat Geo for, on that. Uh, so what I tried to do is, yes, I did visit. I tried to like uh, tell the story instead of like going to like people who are dying out of hunger, try to look at the, the food uh, chain and how it's being transported. Yes, I had to visit a malnourished ward with children. But then instead of doing those typical images of dying, hungry um, um, children who are, their bodies that like in, this formed, uh, I tried to take a different angle. I felt a 10 year old kid, a daughter who was a girl who was taking care of her nephew and it was uh, the type of imagery I tried to produce was different. Um, but I don't have a like an answer to it. I'm still struggling with it myself. I think how you described it is is quite powerful. Just just what you said, you know, it's uh, in the past, especially I think we there's one image or, you know, one defining angle, but you have to show the broader picture to actually be able to help answer some of the questions and perhaps get help for for the situation. Um, and, you know, let me, well, I'll ask all of you this, but I'll, I'll, I'll start with him. You know, we've talked about the responsibility of the journalists to, to tell the story. The story is not us. It never should be about us. We want to stay out of the way as much as possible. But a story like this uh, can leave a lasting impact uh, on a person, even if you have to move on to other powerful stories, which I know you all, all are already doing that. But Hind, let me start with you. How has it impacted you or how do you deal with with whatever impact it's it's left. 
Um, well, I have, I have Afghan friends who left Afghanistan many years ago as a result of the war. And I was born in Iraq and my family left very luckily on a plane. Um, so my dad went to study, but he chose a place outside of Iraq because it was the Iran-Iraq war at the time. Um, and I grew up in the United Kingdom as a result. And so when, when you see these images of uh, refugees or people who are leaving a, their country behind and going to another country where they will have a new identity and they'll have, you know, a life experience that we just don't know what holds for them. Um, it, it made me think a lot about you know, my own experiences and, and what lies for the people that we were witnessing in real time, having to leave their country behind. So I also went to Turkey uh, to cover some of the um, refugees who had made it to Iran and then were traveling through Van and either staying in Turkey or then trying to go on to Europe. And we went back twice and we covered also the routes that people were taking um, to try and get into Greece or in, uh, into other countries in Europe and watching people put, putting their life on hold, um, not being supported. We, see, we saw all those images, for example, of um, Afghans trying to make it onto the planes and trying to get out of Afghanistan, but there was also people who were taking, were going by foot um, or going, trying to travel through by car and, and hearing their stories and their journeys and then seeing um, all the young girls and boys who were also traveling. Um, yeah, it's, it, it's really difficult to look at people in that situation and, you know, either some of them hadn't made it to the end of their journey and so we don't know what their lives would hold. I remember seeing one like these two sisters who were preparing to cross over into into Greece uh, on a dangerous mission with their with their parents, and one one of the sisters was braiding the hair of the other sister, and it just seemed like such a normal moment for them, like such a loving moment. But what they're about to embark on was so dangerous, and and in the end they didn't make it. They came back into Turkey. They didn't make it into Greece, and uh, and I, we understood that they were going to have to try and do, make that journey again. Um, and there was, for example, we did a story back in, in, in 2020. So we followed up on the maternity ward attack that had happened earlier on in that year. And we wanted to investigate what had happened. Um, there were lots of women, mothers who were killed, pregnant women, doctors. Um, and so we investigated that whole, that, that whole terrorist attack. And we met a lot of incredible incredible people, women, husbands, doctors, uh, who were there, who um, had, had lost family members. And there was one family, Hussein and Soraya and their baby Nazanin, who had managed to survive this terror attack. And we met them there and we spoke to them and we interviewed them um, and we really formed a bond with them. And they've now left Afghanistan, they're Hazara. So they, they've left Afghanistan and they're now in America and they sent me pictures of their daughter in the US. And I just, you know, I looked at these pictures and thinking, well, she's going to grow up in the US with a, an American identity as well as an Afghan identity. And that is going to determine who she is, her life path. And it's going to be, a, it's going to play such a massive role 
in her life because I've seen that happen with myself and all my other friends who left countries at a certain point of conflict. Um, and so it was, yeah, I was happy that the family had made it to a safe location and that they were safe and, and relieved that they were there. But also, you know, there was a very big sense of sadness that this young child had been forced to leave her, the, the country she was born in. And that was something that she's going to have to deal with or reckon with when she was older. So I guess that, you know, it's those constant reflections on the impacts of conflict on people. And the reality is that it's always um, the most vulnerable in society who are affected the most and, you know, whose lives are affected for a long time. And I guess that's what we always have to try and remember as journalists to put in the center of our reporting and to remember that it's about, you know, the telling the human side of, of, of conflict and allowing those voices to be heard as much as we can. Yeah, they're not stories, they're, they're people, right? So Jeff, what, how do you deal with what you had to, to leave behind, the people you had to leave behind? Yeah, I mean, I deal with it by continuing to do stories about it. Um, I mean, among other things, it's, you know, not based there, based um, in Toronto, but uh, I've had the support of, uh, of our news management, uh, Stuart and I both, to continue covering this story um, and, and trying to keep it in the public eye. Um, and I think... You know, part of that ongoing coverage, we were waiting to see if, you know, one of, what would happen to these families who had received approval to come to Canada, but who were now trapped and there was really no way out. And we saw just before Christmas, uh, a 10-year-old girl named Nasifa was, was killed uh, by a Taliban bullet. Uh, there are differing accounts of exactly what happened, but her family was driving through a checkpoint when one of the Taliban guards started shooting at the car. And then a lot of them started shooting and she got a bullet in the head. Um, and, you know, her family was in Kandahar trying to deal with getting a passport and getting their paperwork sorted so that they might stand a chance of, of getting out. Um, but I think, you know, we're continuing to do the stories. I mean, I've been talking just this week with some Canadian veterans about the huge spike in, um, in suicide attempts from Canadians who's soldiers who served in Afghanistan, uh, one of whom tried to take his life on Christmas Eve and, uh, what it's like for them to watch this sort of, this situation implode and then you know you do feel like it's you know the public attention sort of moves on and it's trying to do those stories to to keep it to keep our attention focused are difficult i think you know it's been mentioned there by kiana and others that you know how do you tell these stories in a way that where it doesn't just feel like another story about poor people in a poor country how do you make it resonate and i think you alluded to you know like there are those images like alan curdy you remember that poor little Syrian boy uh, whose body was washed up on the beach. And that sparked, it completely changed the conversation around the Syrian refugee crisis. So, you know, it was a tragic story, but that image and that story made such a difference. Um, and so it's trying to, to continue to tell the story in a way that connects. And I think for us, trying to connect with a, a Canadian audience at Global News is, is looking for examples where there are Canadian connections and maybe it's mm -hmm. a family you know, an interpreter who risked his life working with Canadian forces for all these years, uh, whom we promised to help and who now we have left behind. Um, and I think, you know, showing the pictures of the kids in the safe houses was something we really wanted to do. And that's why we went there. Before we went, we was sort of asked by one of our managers, you know, why can't we do this story over Zoom? Like, why do we need to go? <laughs> and it's, um, you know, it's a question that, uh, you know, is a fair one, especially for news organizations with dwindling budgets. 
uh, to do these sorts of stories. But I think the reason, one of the key reasons was that you can go and you can put a real human face on these stories. Yeah. Not only the, you know, the, the head of the father, but also the kids and, and the wife and, uh, and hopefully have it resonate in a way with, with viewers and readers that it might not otherwise. And Stuart, do you, do you find it, it harder to compartmentalize or, or separate as you cover more and more difficult stories as you do this job for longer or easier or maybe there's no answer? Well, I, I think as journalists, um, that's what we do. We tell uh, difficult stories. And um, I feel like when people tell us their story, when desperate people tell us their stories, it's our burden that we carry to pass it on, to, to tell those stories in, a, in the proper way. But, um, you know, there is a catharsis in doing that. We, we kind of, in telling the story, we unload it onto the reader in some way. So, you know, I do, I do think that, um, you know, the other thing, I guess, is that, you know, in some ways, when you go into these conflicts or really, um, you know, difficult situations, um, yeah, you see really horrible things. But on the other hand, you also, um, that experience uh, makes you appreciate uh, that you get to leave <laughs> and you get to come back to a country like Canada. Uh, so in some ways, it reinforces uh, how fortunate we are uh, and how privileged we are, uh, as opposed to, you know, uh, sort of dwelling on the negative side of things. Mm -hmm. And before we get to question, questions from our from our audience here, Kiana, let me give you the last word for this this part of the the panel. You're still there. You did leave and come back, uh, but there can often be a guilt associated with that. Um, but also, you're there, and while you still cover the stories, you're not able to help everyone, obviously, and they know that you're there and reaching out to you, I'm sure. So how have you managed through all of this? Uh, hasn't been easy. I I don't know. It's a... I mean, uh, I think I'm lucky that all those people that I really care that I've um, become very close with, local colleagues, um, friends, uh, those people are out, all of them. But it's also, I mean, the desperation is there. And um, I don't know. I don't know how I deal with it. Um, I think you reach, you just the point. I think it's something that like doctors, like people in this field of work, they, you just have to be logical about it, right? What can you do and what you can't do, right? And then, but it's not always easy. Like there are times that you walk away from something and you know you can't do anymore, but you're still your chest is aching. Um, I wish I had a better answer. No, that's 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 a perfect answer. All of your answers have been very powerful. I do want to get some of the um, questions we have from uh, that have been sent in to us. And I will say, I think you've all made a very, very powerful case. If any news director ever says <laughs> on a story like this, uh, can we do it over Zoom? I think you've all illustrated uh, once again why being there is always uh, is always better. Let me look at some of the questions we have from our listeners. Just going through some of some of them we've uh, we've answered here. One audience member wrote into us. Uh, they're a journalism student. And so looking for advice here, in Canada now, but born in Afghanistan and raised partly there, finding themselves distraught and defeated by, by what has happened in Afghanistan. So how they're asking how they can 
prepare for the kind of news that they are going to be expected to cover, but separate themselves from their homeland while they pursue their dream job. How do I still serve the world via journalism? They ask. Um, Kiana, let me ask you, you're, you're there and you, you answered some of this and in some of your answers, but just what would your advice to be to a journalism student trying to navigate this world? Uh, I mean, I returned to my home country. I was born in Iran, raised partially there, went abroad and then eventually went back. And after a year, I realized it's not really for me to cover it. I was too emotional to everything. So I used the skill that I had, including my language skills, to move to the neighboring country and do that. So I think it's important to realize what are the qualities that you have because of your background, where you were born, the, your cultural history, the language, everything. And then if you can do something and uh, cover something in Afghanistan, do that. If not, put those skills into uh, something that you could do, whether working in your home, in Canada or if you are going to go abroad, use those skills. One more for you, um, Kiana. Samira writes to us, have you heard from any of the women you documented for the New York Times at the women's jail? Yes, 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 yes. Um, some good news, some bad news. Yes, I am in touch with a handful of them. I don't know if, uh, sadly, the prison manager who I became very close with, she has disappeared. Um, she was called into work, uh, walked out of the house, hasn't been found, and there has been no... A lot of people are investigating what has happened. Nobody knows. That's the bad news. Good news. Uh, one of the mothers that I became close with eventually was released during corona. Um, and then we became close and closer. And when this happened, with the help of a handful of people, a team people, she is now out and on her way to Canada very soon. <laughs> um, and yeah, a few of them have gone to Iran. So yes, I am in touch with, uh, with some of them, not everyone. Jeff, let me ask you, Jeff and Stuart, on this, in terms of the Canadian government's response or, or lack thereof, uh, as it may be, what John is asking, you know, how do you account, can you account for the Canadian government's ignoring of the warnings from veterans about their interpreters, et cetera? So just tell us a little bit about what your reporting has, has revealed on that front. Yeah, do you want to go, Stuart, do you want me to? I, I guess, uh, I mean, I would just say that... Um, I mean, there's just really no disputing that there were, uh, I mean, on one hand, as we've mentioned already, there there were a few people who expected it to happen as quickly as it happened, it being the, the Taliban takeover. Um, but there were warnings um, for, for many, many, many months, um, you know, from all sorts of groups, including from Canadian veterans, as, um, as the person really noted there, where uh, they were banging on the door of the government and uh, Foreign Minister, Immigration Minister, um, from you know early in the spring um and uh you know i think it's you know hindsight's 2020 but it was i think it's a consensus now that the response was was not adequate and was far too slow um and i think what's what's interesting to me now and as i mentioned it already is that i mean it's a very complicated situation the the crux of it is there are all of these refugees whom canada has promised to help but they're trapped in the country the canadian government doesn't have a presence in that country so and what the Canadian government wants to do is get all of those people to a third country first, like Pakistan, for example, um, where they can run their biometric checks and check their paperwork to make sure they are who they say they are and that there are you know, no security questions before then moving them to Canada. The problem is you know, there aren't a ton of neighboring countries there who are willing to take in a whole bunch of 
refugees who might be going to Canada next, uh, because what if a red flag goes up and then they're stuck and then these countries have to send them back and it creates a whole mess. Um, but that is really the Canadian government's current conundrum. Um, they are wanting the UNHCR to process all of that for them. And so they are drawing now refugees mm -hmm. from other countries outside of Afghanistan, and they are using that to potentially pad their stats and make it look like we are rescuing the people whom we promised to rescue, uh, but we're not. The Canadian government is, is and has not been getting people um, out of Afghanistan. And Stuart, did you want to add to that? Yeah, I think, I mean, you know, as Jeff said, it's easy to look back in retrospect uh, and say, we, you know, Canada didn't get people out, but um, it happened. And uh, I think what um, what's apparent now is that the Canadian, even after Kabul fell, the Canadian government's uh, immigration program was just not equipped to deal with that volume of people. And um, why they haven't, you know, they, they say they have beefed up, they've added staff, they've sent people to various consulates and embassies overseas, but um, we just haven't seen the, uh, you know, the results of that. I mean, there are still thousands and thousands of people that are stuck inside trying to get out, that are in third countries trying to get out. And that's the unforgivable part um, for me that I just don't comprehend. Um, I can see not anticipating uh, events as they transpired, but the failure to deal with the problem after it happened, uh, it's just, it's very hard to understand. And let me ask you, this is a journalism student, I, I believe, Mahak asking, how does one go about becoming a conflict correspondent? It's not easy, that's for sure, but uh, take us through what your advice would be to them. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really, it's not easy. Um, uh, I studied chemistry. I did a degree in medicinal chemistry before I went on to do a master's in journalism, and we know that you know, uh, masters cost money as well. They do in the UK. I was lucky enough to get a scholarship. Um, and the reality is in the United Kingdom, at least, um, and actually probably across the board, uh, we know that journalism remains quite an elitist industry. It definitely is in the UK. You have a high proportion of people who come from private school backgrounds rather than, um, you know, state schools. Uh, and so there's an in terms of like diversity and management, um, we're seeing a lot of changes on camera, but in management, not necessarily as much change as what we'd like to see happen. And so it definitely is is difficult. Um, but use use your unique selling points, use your knowledge, use what you know about certain areas. And, you know, like was mentioned earlier, if you have a language skill, like I speak Arabic, and so that really does help um, in, in terms of, being able to tell stories or communicate with people or be able to um, create connections with individuals who you meet and allow them to talk about what happened to them. Um, and yeah, I'd say that definitely, you know, know as much as you can on the topic, on the subject. Um, and uh, also I would definitely say one of the most important things uh, in journalism it would be allies if you know people who um, you trust, you can communicate with, who understand you, who you know um, will be able to help you. Those connections and those contacts are so important because not only would they potentially help you uh, in certain positions or in certain roles, but it also allows you to stay a little bit sane in such a 
um, a job in a job that can be quite an unstable profession. And be ready to work harder than you will probably have to work uh, at, at anything in this field. I mean, you'll definitely uh, have to sacrifice a few um, birthdays and uh, and family occasions, which isn't to say the least. Always yeah, great. It, it is not a it is not a nine to five. Uh, that's Definitely for sure. Not. And I think that's probably why many of us are, are attracted to it, but also the importance of the stories and the global implications and the people at the heart of them. I, I can't thank you all enough for this time. It has been, um, I think, powerful uh, and moving. So I really, really appreciate all of your time. And Natalie, thank you uh, and the rest of the team for, for letting me be a part of it. The next CJF J Talks live event, Reimagining Business Journalism, is set for March 29th. So put that on your calendar. You can find all of the previous talks, as I mentioned, on the CJF site. You can sign up for the CJF newsletter, uh, or you can follow CJF on social media. I can confirm they are on Instagram and active. So thank you again for tuning in, for being part of this, this powerful hour. I'm Neil Kirksal, and again, uh, the attention to international stories uh, is Afghanistan is just one example of why it's so important to keep covering these stories. Whether they have connect direct connections to Canada or not, I would say uh, the world lives in this country uh, and the people in this country are interested about the world. I always say that and I think you guys have proven once again why it's important to keep covering these stories and having these conversations. So thanks again to the CJF team and all of you for being part of this. Take care, everybody.